September 30th, 2012, lecture discussion number 83 on the Book of Romans. Uh, maybe, meaning that it, it might not be so much Romans again today. As you know, I'm, I'm uh, trying to survive more than any other thing. That's just exactly what I'm doing, trying to, uh, trying to get everything I have to do uh, under control. Uh, and I have been stuck for a while intentionally uh, on the implications of existence and what existence really has to mean. You just can't say uh, things without understanding what it is you're saying. And when you, when you say, I exist, then you're required to, ex- to ask a bunch of questions about it. Uh, where did your existence come from? What is the definition of existence? Uh, what is the implications of existence? And so that's what I've been doing. Uh, to reword it a little better, what really I'm doing is trying to establish for you that you cannot ignore free will and separate it from existence, which is very, very common today. That's, in fact, it's hardly ever that I, I come up with somebody who will say to me, you're right, or you at least have a point, that I cannot separate belief and free will from existence. And I phrase it in a, in a maybe an odd way. I ask all the time this question. And if you've attended the past few Sundays, you might remember the question that I keep repeating. And I keep repeating it so that you will always think of it as the question that applies to free will, belief, and existence. I ask it this way. If I don't possess free will, do I exist? Or do I only have the illusion of existence? If you say I have, uh, I have no free will, have you in fact canceled out my existence? By the way, the people that say you have no free will, and there are legions of them, as you know, they are more than willing to say that we don't really have an existence. They recognize that this is a problem for them. So, again, if I don't possess free will, if I cannot believe, if I don't know good from evil, do I really exist or truly exist? Is there a dependency with respect to free will in existence? Or another way of saying it, does existence require free will? That's what's at issue here, which is everyone knows that that kind of a question or that type of a question sends us careening into all sorts of obstacles. And let me make a list for you. When you start asking, does free will and existence have a dependency, a requirement that both be there, the same with belief, because the anatomy of belief, for example, how do I believe something? What's required to believe something? I must have the capacity to believe something. If I have the capacity to believe something, then that requires what? Free will. So that's how you get the three of those together, or the four of them. Actually, you'll hear me put knowing good and evil, the ability to distinguish between good and evil. That's on the list. So let's take a really quick tour around this. Predestination. To predestine something is going to enter into any discussion of existence and free will and belief and knowing good and evil. Levels of free will. If I have free will, how much free will do I have? How high of a level do I have? Do I have more of a level than something else? Who has free will? What level do they have? The image of God, because God's image is uh, very much in dispute in Scripture. It would surprise you, I think, but so many argue over it. Then there, as soon as I get into this, obviously I have the origin of evil. Where did evil come from? And the number one answer to that question, if you went to a hundred churches, uh, 85 of them would probably have the pastor say to you, people ask me all the time, if I leave Cliffside, and you will, uh, and I go to another church, and you will, that's a pun, by the way, how, how do I tell if it's a good church I'm going to? Just ask the pastor, the elder board, or any of the guys, uh, you know, passing the plate. What is the origin of evil? If they say God is probably going to be a tough road for you there. I'd say very large percentage of them will give you that answer. 
Once I have the origin of evil, then I have to have a definition of evil. What is evil? How do I define it? And then as I said, knowing the difference or distinguishing, knowing or distinguishing between good and evil. That was pretty much what we did last week. If you missed that, I would recommend that you get a hold of Lori or Janie and try to figure out how you can get a copy of that. I know it's on the Internet, but I don't know how to find anything on the Internet. In case Sharon, Sharon wrote me, she said, how can I find things on the Internet? And I said to call Dave. Because um, I don't know where they are and I don't know how to find them most of the time. But they are out there. And last week's is as well. Omniscience as a causing agent. I know that's the wrong thing, but I put it there anyway. Omniscience is a causing agent, so let me repeat it for the listening people. Predestination, levels of free will, image of God, origin of evil, definition of evil, knowing or distinguishing good from evil, and omniscience is a causing agent. Any discussion of existence of free will and belief gets you into that list immediately, and that barely starts a discussion. So let me deal with a couple of loose ends that I left from last week quickly, because I strew a bunch of stuff around because uh, that's just how you do these things, I'm afraid. There's no really set way to line it all up. Musings on existence, if you will, is what we'll do a little bit again today. First, quite often, in fact, last week, I'm asked if I think predestination is evil. They ask me that. And so let me answer it. No. Predestination is not evil. To say predestination is evil is equivalent to saying omniscience is evil. Why is that the case? Because in order to predestine, in order for predestination to occur, omniscience is necessary. And as soon as I say that, here comes the no-willers. Ah, we have trapped the old fat guy. They, they say to me immediately, okay, ranting idiot, you're saying omniscience is good. They exclaim that to me. Aha! You're saying omniscience is good. Yes, I am saying omniscience is good. God is omniscient. God is absolute good. The math is simple. Omniscience is good. Transitive property. A equals B. B equals C, A equals C, right? God is omniscience, God is absolute good, omniscience is good. And somehow from that, the no, the no willers and no free willers conclude that I'm trapped into admitting that God is the author of sin, the creator of sin. I was talking to Bill the Cow earlier, he gets on the internet as you know, and he was talking about some guy that he ran into, and it's, it is amazing how many there are that think this way and how aggressive they are. And um, there's many, many ways to attach this or to uh, deal with this issue uh, uh, if you like to get into these kinds of things. And it's valuable that you do it for no other reason for the sake of your kids because you will reinforce your own ability to reason through it and you'll be able to explain it to them. Bill goes to the sacrificial system uh, method, which, is, by the way, is pretty much how I do it as well. But he has another interesting take on it he is also that he should share with you if you're bored and want to listen to it. But uh, it's very good. But anyway, no, God's omniscience is not the causation of sin. Knowing is not sin. Just because God knows does not cause sin. Knowing isn't sin or the cause of sin. Knowing is knowing. That's what it is. If I were to know what you were to do, my knowing is not the causing agent of your acts. I know what, I know what they're doing downstairs 
right now the teenage girls that are trying to get out of the sermon. I know what they're doing. I am not causing it. My knowing, or God's knowing in this case, knowing is not sin. It's knowing. That seems like a duh, doesn't it? But for some reason it isn't. So if his knowing if is not the causing agent, his omniscient, then what's the obvious question? What is the causing agent? What is the causing agent of your actions? Let's vote. How many say it's your parents? Yes. What, what, but you see, <laughs> yes, I know. The roof sounded like it was falling in at that very moment, didn't it? Nobody on the side where it was going to uh, drop on top of you moved. You are very, very... Uh, did they tell you to stay, that it was safe, perfectly safe? Okay, Katrina, as long as they're sitting behind you, at least you got... You, they, that's a good, good strategy. If Ken and Cindy take off, then everybody leaves. You've heard me say this many times. If there is an earthquake... Do not stay in this building. <laughs> Do not run screaming for your lives out of here. This thing is going to come down. Look at me. I got what? Oh, my goodness. 325 pounds of speakers over the top of my head. So anyway, where am I? Okay. If omniscience is not the causing agent, and it's not, it is, it is omniscience. It's knowing then what is the causing agents of or causing agent of my action i can defer it or i can blame others you see is there any, really any difference between blaming my parents for my uh, disposition and my acti- and my activities and my thought processes saying my mom because she was uh, i had alzheimers i'm therefore a, a, a criminal is that any more logical than saying the reason that i sin is satan How about the reason I sin is God? Does God cause his sin by knowing about it? I submit that the causing agent of uh, your sin is um, you. That's just a thought. You might consider it instead of blaming others for it. I'm very, very suspicious of people who call me and say, um, and they used to quite often and tell them, the laughter would quiet them down. They would tell me they missed church because Satan had set a trap for them and they had fallen for it. That Satan had personally come and visited them and had stopped them from doing something. And I told them, wow, you are very powerful. Satan himself is bothering you. He doesn't have anybody else that he wants to talk to or bother but you. That's really impressive. Or not. Maybe you just think so. By the way, Satan is not omnipresent. Satan has a location. He is not spatially unextended. He has size. He has location. He can be determined where he is. He's a created being. Is he able, on a whim, to come and bother me on the lower hillside? He doesn't have ability to do those kinds of things. He is not all-powerful. Do not ascribe that to him. He is a limited, created being that happens to be very evil and very intelligent and very powerful, but don't make him more than he is. God has authority over him. Anyway, does he have a very effective system in place that fools? It's like, think of it this way. Satan has a bunch of cockroach traps. And he spreads them all over the place. Who are we in the story? We're the cockroaches. Is that right? Now, did this, he doesn't go and herd us into the traps. He just lays the traps. We run ourselves into the trap. Causing agent of sin, as I said, I submit is ourselves. I hope most of you have noticed now the observer effect being raised here again. This is observation. Remember all that wave particle duality and interferometry? The inter, interfer, sorry, <coughs> interferometry. All of that very fun stuff. Noticing that a, that particles of light were both particles and wave. 
uh, important. It's very important stuff. You see, God, why do I bring up the observer effect? Because I have observation. Why do I have observation? Because I have omniscience. God knowing. God, by being the creator of time and therefore outside of time, is able to observe all of time simultaneously. That is his capability. No one else has that. You must be uncreated to have that. A created being, it does not have that capacity. So, but he does. He observes time and the events inside of time simultaneously in the present. And and as I said last week, that's one of the two meanings of his name, the I am. He is always in the present, and that establishing, establishing, establishes him as the creator of time, the only one who can simultaneously observe all of time. So that's what the I am means, one of two meanings. He's in the present. He is omnipresent, always in the present. We are what? Never in the present. We have no presence. Sorry if that ruins your Christmas. We have past and we have future. He has present. Always. And he is the source of existence. That's the other meaning of I am. Always in the present. And he is existing. He is the one who has always existed. Ah, let me say this. He is the one who has always exists. That's more correct. See the difference? Sounds funny, but it's more correct. He is the one who has always exists. So I kept it all in the present tense there. Anyway, God witnessing, God observing, or recording, if you will, or cataloging, that's what he's actually doing. Why is he cataloging? He can't help it because he's omniscient. What does he do, by the way, with his observing and his cataloging and his recording? Yeah, here comes the great white throne judgment, okay? But his doing that, his recording, cataloging, observing, witnessing is separated from our existence, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, the wave particle duality, this is going to be a little, what's the word I want? Drool inducing. My physicality requires that he perceives me. Back to George Berkeley uh, for that uh, understanding a little bit. Um, He perceives me. If you want to think of it, he thinks of me. And because he thinks of me, and he is the one who gives existence, I have existence. I don't have existence except that he does, in fact, perceive me into existence. So I have this this element of perception and that observance uh, changes, uh, as you remember, from particle and wave duality. It changes particle to wave through observation. If if light is observed, it will change by, because of that observation. Uh, that uh, if you weren't here for that, we'll be get back to it eventually uh, and tie it all together. I hope. But my existence, which carries with it my free will, is immortal. I have been given eternal existence by him who can do so. He gives me an eternal existence, but my free will affects my destination, as does my belief, which are essentially the same thing. But he is the only one who is able to give existence. So what I'm trying to say here is the fact that you have existence is not impacted by his observation. Does that make sense to you? Probably not. It's okay. The observer effect is concerned with the physical characteristics of matter. And it's applicable to living souls in this case. How matter, how we're designed. Okay? God does have a process in place that... uh, that you can see the, the changing of physical and non-physical. That's really the case with resurrection being the most foremost. I know that's confusing, 
But the problem that I have is people say to me, by his very observation, by his observing, he is affecting my free will. He is not affecting your free will by observing you. The observer effect affects your physical design. Does that make sense? It's the difference between your existence and your physical design. See me later. You should see, I should film the audience when I say things like this. Let me do it this way. Confusing observation with the origin of sin is illogical. To say by his mere observation that he is the causing agent of sin and therefore must be the origin of sin isn't logical. Sin therefore must be caused by something else again. It must be caused by, there's only one thing left. And that's the will aspect of our existence. Therefore, we are accountable and, and face judgment. But the no-willers will say otherwise. They will assert that predestination is evidence of causation. They will say predestination, for example, prophecy. Prophecy is clearly predestination, isn't it? He predestines that something happened. And prophecy is predestination. Typology, the same thing. I have Joseph. He's in a pit. He's re- renounced by his brothers. He's, he's, uh, they sought to kill him. He ends up in slavery. He rises up and saves the world from famine. Reveals himself to his brother. That's typology of Christ in Israel. It's profound. Moses. Profound typologies. There's all kinds of them. The, the lamb. The uh, Passover lamb. The, all of these things. All of these typological things are evidence of predestination. Well, that raises the most obvious of the obvious questions. Is there ever an example in the Bible where God predestined something that is evil? You can do that on your own while you're dealing with the puzzles in the bulletin. Did God predestine evil, or did God predestine good? But to make it a silly question, did God cause, because predestine and cause are interchangeable, aren't they? Did God cause that the overwhelming majority of human beings would be condemned to everlasting torment, including infant children, including children that didn't even reach infancy? Did God cause that the overwhelming majority of human beings would be condemned to everlasting torment, or did he instead predestine his plan of salvation? Which one did he predestine? Now, I put that on an either-or for you. The the no-free-willers answer that he caused both of those. Really. Here's your problem with that view. One of those views is... Evolutionary monism. When I say that, I mean it's hopelessness. There is no purpose. It's random. Some are predestined for eternal life. Others are predestined for eternal death. What what is the reason for that? Why are some chosen and some not chosen? What would be the reason? What is the criteria? What is it? Lottery? Size, weight? Location? What is it? What is your criteria for that decision? Capriciousness? Luck? Coin flip? Roll of the dice? See, that gets you into evolutionary monism, doesn't it? Because that's what they say. It's all random luck. God, if there is a God, it's just, he's just doing what, you know, he's safe, he's not, he's safe, shoot him. Has, has no predictability and no purpose. Yes, Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you hear that? Say it loud. Yeah, very well said. Okay. So let me just point out again the difference between the two. Does he predestine condemnation 
Or does he predestine salvation? Or does he predestine both? If you say he predestined both, one is hopelessness, the other is what? Hope. They are what? Absolute opposites. Now, anybody that knows math would say that absolute opposites, Troy, what do they do? Huh? They, are, they cancel each other out. They become zero. Positive one and negative one, zero. Did God then, if he predestined both of those things, did he actually produce a plan that reduced itself to nothing? That's your, that's what he did? That's your, your, your conclusion? I have absolute opposites. They contradict. Why would an omniscient God produce a contradiction? Wouldn't he know it's a contradiction? But anyway, we all agree, me and the no-willers, we all agree that God causes things. I mean, he does. He has free will. And we all agree that God predestines things. The argument comes over what is caused and what is predestined and how much free will or the levels of free will. So that's how those two fit together right there on the list. And hopefully that makes sense. I always submit that God is always good. I use the always there twice on purpose. It's a never not. In other words, God is never not good. I always submit that God is always good. I always say that God causes good. I always say that God predestines good. Now, that gives me a problem, doesn't it? Because I have to have a definition both of good and a definition of evil. That means that I have to be able to distinguish good and evil. See how that fits on the list. Let me explain. Mankind does not possess absolute free will. God is always good. That's what I say. Both statements seem unassailable to me. You do not have absolute free will. I can prove that to you. Two ways. God will imprison the ones that reject him. You do not have the capacity, once you are saved, to unsave yourself. You do not have absolute free will. You cannot vomit up the blood that you drank or wash it off or sand it off with whatever solvent or 25-grit sandpaper that you can find and belt sander. You can't do it. Your free will is limited. My free will is limited. So there we go. Levels of free will. What, how much free will do I have is the discussion. So, and God is always good. As you know, some wish to impose their own definition of, of good, which is instantly questionable. Why would man want to insert himself into God's arena? But they do. I respond that good means good. There we go again. Knowing means knowing. Good means good. End the sermon. And I respond that good does not mean evil. Evil means evil. Good means good. Knowing means knowing. There you're getting your money's worth today. Isaiah 5.20. Good does not mean evil. The discussion on how much free will, I agree, it possesses a little bit more complexity. But it too is centered in the knowing of good and evil, which again was last week's lecture. Okay. That's enough of that for today. This, just to get you started, I know. We just keep battling it. It is ultimately a Romans issue because of Adam and Eve at the trees, which is where we're going again, but this time with a little bit more emphasis on existence and free will. Okay. Because that, by the way, is what Romans is doing. It's explaining to you that there is free will, there is goodness, and there is knowing good and evil, and there is existence, and, and there is this amazing Symmetry between all of them, that's what the book of Romans do. So what's next? Well, we should take on the, uh, the uh, Dennis Prager question.
I don't know if you know who that is, but he's a, a radio political commentator, social commentator. He's a, um, a, a very well-studied Jewish uh, theologian, actually. Very thoughtful man, but he has a problem. He has a problem with John 8.24. As you know, that is where Christ says, uh, if you essentially do not believe that he is God, you will perish in your sins, right? John 8.24. And that, by the way, is a huge, huge verse in the Bible that no one seems to know. But Dennis Prager does not like that verse. He may not know it, but he has a, a problem with it, and he has a problem with almost all of 1 John. Though I doubt he realizes it, as I said. The, the, uh, the Jewish theologians don't study the New Testament, even though it was written primarily by Jews. Um, they don't think the New Testament uh, is uh, of any value at all, and they don't recognize it. Anyway, this very thoughtful man uh, has raised an objection and I, I don't think that he realizes exactly what he's actually proposing. Now, to help out here, uh, Benjamin from Chicago asked me to address this a long, long time ago. So not exactly this way, but I thought I'd interject it here because of how it fits. Let me lay it out for you. Mr. Prager believes that he also can determine the definition of good. And if he can determine the definition of good, then what else can he determine? The definition of evil. He can know good and evil. So he has decided that he's going to propose a definition of good. And he believes that the Orthodox Christian faith contains a fundamental flaw here. Uh, which he often brings up when he discusses religious issue. It goes something, issues. It goes something like this. This is what he says. So I'll try to quote him, um, as best I can. It's not right. I don't have him perfect. And uh, he can take issue with it if he would like. And um, uh, I, I do listen to him as much as I can. I'm fascinated by Jewish thinking. I think it's important that I do listen to them because I know um, I know how important they are. So that's what I'm drawn to do. So I'll paraphrase him as best I can. So here's what he would say, I think, um, as clearly as he could if he were to come up here and preach before this massive audience. (laughs) Christians claim, I think he would say, Christians claim that God will cast otherwise good, moral, ethical, kind people into everlasting torment simply because they don't believe in the name of Christ or accept Christ as their Savior. They merely do not believe that And that is cause for their condemnation. That is, that is indefensible, he would say. And then he draws an equivalency to other religious extremists, religious extremes that he finds equivalent, such as the Mormon teachings that are, uh, I don't know how to describe them. Um, You know, you have and uh, Car Arena would would be able to tell you some of these things uh, much better than I would. But there are some. Who? Um, how do I say it? Fanciful. Women. Um, the role of women uh, in eternity is pregnancy, like a termite queen or something. It is just. It is just absurd. And it goes on, and I don't want to beat up on the poor Mormons. They they are, after all, trying to win the presidency of this country, and so I don't want to bother them. But uh, what they believe is fiction. And they don't really believe it very often when I talk to them. Because I've asked them. They belong to a society that is beneficial to belong to for economic and social reasons. Not because the doctrine makes any sense. And that's what's happening there. So Mr. Prager draws an equivalency to um, the doctrine of Christianity that says, John 8.24, you must believe that Christ is God in the flesh and and the Savior of the world. 
the sacrificial blood substitute, and if you don't, you will perish in your sins. He draws an equivalency between that and the termite queen stuff. Essentially asking this, how can you Christians denounce Mormonism when you have this indefensible view on salvation? And by the way, this is exactly... uh, Exactly the same argument so often raised by the media just last week, last Sunday, uh, the Doonesbury cartoon. What they say is this, that Adam and Eve and the Noadic flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and Nimrod, Tower of Babel, David and Goliath are all fables. Now, who says that all the time? Yes, the cartoonists do and the comedians in this country. And they call it lies and nonsense, uh, simple, unbelievable stories. And they, Doonesbury said this essentially last week, um, the great thinker, uh, Doonesbury. Who is he? I can't remember. Gary Trudeau. Thank you. The great uh, philosopher Gary Trudeau essentially said this last week. No one should or can get into any college with the superstitious beliefs that is Christianity. They scream at that. They scream this constantly. The cartoonists do, and the comedians do, and they're certain that the book of Genesis is a childish elementary collection of myths. And I know you've all heard that thrown at your face, and it is an intimidating trick, by the way. Um, and it's great irony. Those who create Hollywood, though, the, is a great example, those who create absolute myth or make-believe, who, who have nothing but simple stories. Television is is very, very simple story after simple story. And I frustrate my lovely wife because I, there are times when I will say that would never happen and cannot happen. And to believe they have so little in respect for my intelligence that they will put it on there and make me think that, or that, I, that I should believe it. I, I know they mock us. I know they sit in their rooms and say, this is really stupid. But let's air it anyway, because the American public will believe it. You know that reality TV, let me, uh, my favorite thing to do is ruin things. You know that there are men standing in front of all the reality TV shows you watch. I don't pick one, I don't care what it is. A bunch of uh, people in the wilderness pretending to starve or, 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 or you know, celebrities wandering around a family of people with no talent. There are, there are cue cards that are the size of pieces of plywood that have their lines on them. None, all of that is scripted. Very, very little of it is, is unscripted. Don't fall for that. Watch it knowing that it's scripted. The, the singing shows, they're all scripted. The, com- the comedians are all scripted. They're, the talk shows are scripted. Everything is scripted for your entertainment. But what's wrong? With, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good, really. What's wrong? What's wrong is if you believe it's real. That's what's wrong. Anyway, there's irony there. Those who create make-believe and simple stories and fantasy are mocking the book of Genesis, and the most, which is the most complex literature ever written. Anyway, more on that later. Let's look at Mr. Prager's problem, and I'll go really fast, as fast as I can. It's, his problem is in 1 John as well as um, John 8.24. So I'll read it to you. And we'll go really fast. It's in your bulletin in case I don't get through it all. Uh, but uh, it's essentially First John primarily. So let's just take a look. First John two, uh, three through six. Now by this we know that we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I love him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to also to walk just as he walked. Okay? Now, John 3.23. Pay, pay attention to that word commandment back there, by the way. There's commandments here. Those are what? 
Those are orders. It's in a military sense. 323, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. There you are now, back to John 8:24. God has commanded that we believe him when he says who he is and what he's doing. Okay? Uh, 4.2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the Spirit, or come in the flesh, is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So there you go again. If you say that Jesus Christ is God, you are in the spirit of God, and you are believing God. If you say he is not, you are, you are calling him a liar, and you are in the spirit of Antichrist. Does that make sense? And that's where Dennis is struggling with it, right there. He doesn't like that. He says that's indefensible. That's equivalent to queen. That's the same as the uh, termite queen. It's a fable. Whoever believes that Jesus is Christ, I'm sorry, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Five ten. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made God a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. Okay? Can't get any more clear than that. Christian church says it as plain as we can. Add John 8.24. This is the great fundamental verse of this issue, John 8.24. You believe Christ is God, or you perish. And then Matthew 6, by the way, has the element of secrecy. That comes in the definition of good, by the way. If you're doing it in secret and nobody knows about it, what's the chances that it's good? A lot better than if you're taking credit for it. If I'm standing up here telling you that all the things I did for people this week, what have I done? I have profaned any goodness that was there. Do it in secret. What's the, what, what does Matthew 6 say? It says this. I'll put it really good. Shut up about yourself. If you're constantly bragging about yourself or trying to get people to give you attention or hoping that somebody's going to notice you, you are the opposite of what God wants you to be. That's Matthew 6. And he wants you to be what? Like him. And what is he? Good. Anyway, that's our concrete on this issue. So let's ask some really quick, obvious questions uh, about what is good, moral, ethical, fair, and just. Because that's his premise, isn't it, of Mr. Prager. Mr. Prager is saying that you Christians are telling us that good, moral, uh, fair and just people who are just really good people that just don't believe. I mean, they just, they just don't believe in your Christ. And then, you know, uh, you don't believe in the Mormon queen of uh, termite. Well, it's the same thing. They just don't believe. Mr. Prager assumes that salvation based only on belief in Christ is indefensible, it's wrong-minded, it's unfair, and God does not have such a criteria. He then assumes that salvation is attainable through what? Well, he says so. Uh, That person over there is good and moral and ethical and fair and just. He's a good person. God is not going to condemn him because he doesn't happen to believe in in God. Is that not that's what it is, right? doesn't happen to believe in Christ. is the same as saying he doesn't happen to believe in God. Same thing. But Mr. Prager does not understand the deity of Christ issue very often, if he understands it at all. He then assumes, as I said, that salvation is attainable through acts of kindness or a moral life, which causes questions such as, what? If I can get salvation through acts of kindness, what's the obvious question? I want to know something right now. You come up to me and say, you can get salvation by by acts of kindness. Cool. What's my question? How, yeah, how many I got to do? Because what am I going to do? The bare minimum. 
I'm doing, I'm, I'm getting in the dough. But do the minimum. How good do I gotta be? Tell me what it is. Cause that's what I'm aiming for. How many acts of kindness? How many good works? How moral do I have to be? How fair do I have to be? How just do I have to be? How ethical do I have to be? Who determines who qualifies? Who determines if one of my acts qualifies? What exactly is a moral life? How do you define one of those? What You've got to have a big piece of paper. Yes, go. Pretty fast. Yes, yes, you absolutely correct he did. Your choice is, you don't make it, I'm sorry, let me put it this way. Your choice is to be perfect or to take the sacrifice. How many of you plan on being perfect? Well, Mr. Prager says, you don't have to worry about it, you just have to be okay. But now you're in the issue of, who qualifies? What is a moral life? What's the line of demarcation? Mr. Prager and thousands of others are more than eager to eliminate Jesus Christ, who is God himself in the flesh. The I am of Exodus 3. You would hope that a man as thoughtful and as learned as Mr. Prager in the Old Testament would know that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh and says he's the I am of Exodus 3. But they're more than eager to eliminate Christ and replace him with a different system. So, John says that if you don't believe Christ is God, you are calling God a liar. Is calling God a liar, is that good or evil? Pick one. So, Mr. Prager says, I don't believe that Christ is God and I'm still good. Who determines if you're good really fast, by the way? Well, if there is a determiner of who is good and who is not good, that is the one who is outside of time and the observer of all things, right? He is the one who will decide who is good. And what criteria does he say he uses as to whether or not you are good? Whether or not you believe Christ is God. That's what determines if you have any goodness to you. If you don't have that, then you're not good, period. So when he says that was a good moral ethical, no. The very fact that he said that is a good, no. Not by God's definition. And if you don't say, God says, if you don't believe me, you are calling me a liar. And if you are calling God a liar, um, then you reject God and his plan of salvation and his blood. Rejecting God, by the way, is that good or evil? Ultimately, unbelief or rejection of Jesus Christ is calling God a liar. And if you call God a liar, then what is lying? Lying is evil. And if God is a liar, then God is what? Here we are back to math. You call God a liar, then you are calling him evil. Now, let's add in the fact. The fact. This is a fact. Christians are mostly indistinguishable from the world today. I ask all the time. That's an old thing. I stole it from somebody. But if there were a trial on your Christianity, how many of you would be convicted? How many of us would be convicted? By the world. We don't look very Christian. I know that. Listen. We, uh, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we drink, we cuss. I've seen Christians that are proud that they've covered themselves head to foot with tattoos. And we do it at the same mathematical percentages as the world does. Sometimes worse. I taught in the Christian schools. I know how many teen pregnancies I got. I know how many. And I taught in the public schools, as you know. So I know how many problems I have with alcoholism, drug abuse, teen pregnancy uh, in the public. And I know how many I got in the private Christian school. You know what the difference is? Mathematical percentages is the same. 
We are commanded to love one another. Remember me reading that? Instead, it seems that the church is a writhing den of rattlesnakes. Ask any pastor over 60. They'll tell you. Wow. Wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Well, okay. What are we to make of all of this? We've got to have a firm understanding of God's definitions. I've alluded to that already. What does it mean to love one another? How does God define love? What's he say? When you love somebody, you love your enemies. What's he say to you? How do you love your enemies? Okay, I'll give you some choices. If I give you stuff, is that loving you? Does that work? Let's think about it. Free stuff. Is free stuff love? I can make the case, go to any city in this country. Free stuff is what? Destructive. So giving you stuff makes you a boneless chicken. Is that love? If you love someone, what do you wish for them? What do you want for them if you love them? What do you want them to to have? Say it louder. You said it. Salvation. If you love someone, you want them to be saved. If you love your enemies, what should you do? You should do your best to what? Warn them. Teach them. Tell them that Christ is the true God. That they must believe or they'll perish. He's the true God of creation and He's the true God of Israel. I want Mr. Prager to know that. I don't want him to sit behind the radio for his entire life and not know that the God of Israel is Jesus Christ. The one that he sees in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. I want him to know. I want him to make it. God, Jesus Christ is the I am. That's what a good person does. That's how God figures out good. If you are not doing that, then you are not good. And if you are bragging about doing it, then you're profaning it. Do it in secret as your Father who is in secret, right? God is the judge, if you want to think of it this way. He's also the scorekeeper. He's the one that is keeping the alleger. He is the observer. He can't help it. He's the cataloger. Does he deem you good apart from your belief in Jesus Christ? Read Romans 3, 10 through 12, which is Psalms 53, 3, right? There is none who does good, no, not one, apart from Christ. And if you want to be a better person, then you need to ask, how, what's a better person? How do I get to be a better person? Is it the world's definition or my definition of better? Does your definition or the world's definition of better matter? It doesn't matter. God's definition matters. The world's definition is Christless, as is Mr. Prager's. Our definition is most likely Christless. God's way is different. There's another big duh. He defines goodness and love and better and saved by belief. You can't be a better person if you are unsaved. I have people tell me all the time, I think I was a better person before I was saved. Happened last week. I won't point to the person that said it. I'll write their name on the other side of the board. I get it all the time. You can look later. I get it all the time. I was a better person before I was unsaved. Not by God's definition. It's impossible for you to be a better person unless you are saved. So as pathetic as we are now, we're saved and we're better. You can't be a better person without being saved. You can just be a person. It's all you can be. There is no better. There's just person. Salvation, belief in Christ in His name is required in order for goodness to occur. What do you think God would pick? Here are the works of the unsaved person. What does He call them? He calls them filth. Here are the works. What is the work, by the way, for a saved person to do? It's to love his neighbor, love his enemy, love his family. What is that? What is all of that? 
teaching about Christ, telling them about Christ, warning them. Here's the word. That's Oh, that looks like a big pile. What's God call it? Filth. Okay? Here is the work of the Christian. The rattlesnakes. Here it is. Here's theirs. I'll put it down here where you can see the, the graph. Okay? Which one is better? This one. That's better. This is not. Burns up completely. This is something. It's one person. It's your child. You said to your child, believe in Jesus Christ. Anna's got a great story of her mother, Wendy. Wendy got Anna down and the rest of the kids and told them, and Wendy had a troubled life. She, I talked to her on the phone quite a bit before she died. She was a sweet, sweet lady. She got them all down and told them that they couldn't take the mark of the beast. They just couldn't do it. She knew the tribulation was coming. She's probably about 26 or so because Anna was born when she was 15. And she told them all, all those kids. She had five or six of them. I've lost track. But a big brood of them. And she told them all they could not take the mark of the beast. You cannot take the mark of the beast. You can't. You have to promise me that you will choose to be beheaded. Now imagine that. A bunch of kids. Anna was the oldest. And she terrified Anna to this day. Anna never forgot it. I can't take the mark of the beast. I can't do it. I have to be beheaded. She made every one of those kids promise her that they would be beheaded because she knew they were all going into foster care. You will be beheaded. Okay? Everybody agree? Yes, Mom. You know, you're talking about little kids. Ten and, and eight and seven six and four, three, all of them going, we will be beheaded. That's what? That's teaching about salvation. That's a good work. That's what God counts. That's what's better. You can't be better before you are saved. It's impossible. By obeying His commandment, His order to believe in His name, that's how, that's goodness. To refuse to obey that commandment is to call God a liar. That's to reject His sacrificial system. That's to reject Himself. That's to reject His substitutionary atonement. Again, that's rejecting Himself and to ultimately call Him evil and to have sin in Him. Back we are to this, de- this definition. Back we are to this predestination thing again, right? To call God evil, to call God evil is evil. Therefore, unbelief is what? Evil. Unbeknownst to the cartoonists and the others, well, perhaps not unbeknownst, but unbelief is evil. What I notice is there's no fear of not believing God. Man is more than willing to declare God's word stupid, to call God a liar, to proclaim himself, to, complain, to, to proclaim all of mankind to be good, or to be getting good. We're evolving into good or to call themselves kind, or loving, or better, or saved. Man does it all the time without any fear. I had a friend many years ago who said, Why is man without any fear of God? And that is the Doonesbury cartoonist. He has no fear of God. And ultimately, that's where we end up going next week. Why doesn't God defend himself from Doonesbury's mocking You should be able to answer that really fast. Why doesn't God come out and appear to Doonesbury and say, quit mocking me? Why doesn't he do that? Why is God seemingly hiding? Because he does. He does hide himself. There's a typology of the ark hidden under the skins as it went through Israel. Why does he hide? Why doesn't he come to Cliffside and stand up here? He and I could preach together. Would anything be more stupid than that? Huh? But people will say, I never forgot Bill Clinton. He said this one time. I mean, this is what mankind says. Hey, Bill Clinton said this. Let's pick on Bill. Bill Clinton said, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, he would be my Secretary of State. <laughs> you would be his janitor. Bill? Maybe. 
Compared to Thomas Jefferson, Bill Clinton is a fool. Compared to a lot of people, Bill Clinton is a fool. Okay, compared to most persons, Bill Clinton is a fool. Okay, compared to all persons. But the world thinks this fool has substance. What a shame. Why does God seemingly hide himself? Why is he so quiet? There's another question. Why is he so humble? Well, we learn things, by the way, by being quiet. If you're quiet and somebody is talking, you're going to find out something about the talker really fast. What is it? You're going to find out what they think. You're going to find out how wise they are. You're going to learn them. God is listening. He's observing to what he does. He's also got the best video surveillance recording system you can imagine. If you think you have a secret, then what are you? You are a fool. And if you act like no one's going to catch you, what are you? You are a fool. In which case, you should become a cartoonist. That would be good for you. Let the musicians come forward. Why do the musicians have to come forward? Most musicians, by the way, don't sit through the lecture at all. They hide in the, in the uh, bathrooms. Yeah, they do. We're, we're unique this way. We lock the bathrooms. 